0: Hello and welcome to Remembering, Indigenous Teachers of the Jesus Way. For many people who think about the time of early Christian contact in Canada, particularly uh, missionary contact with Indigenous peoples, we tend to think of trauma and hardship and we do so for some very good reasons. But those aren't the only stories to tell about this time. I want to invite you over the next few episodes to join me as we explore tales of bold action, creative strategies, and wise Indigenous leadership, from which I think we can learn. Tune in as we explore whether remembering these stories can help us on the healing journey. My name is Jody Sparger, and I will be your host for this series. Just a little bit of uh, background on me and what brings us to this podcast. I am a settler living as an uninvited guest on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh peoples. I am also an ordained Baptist minister in Western Canada and a PhD student with Nates, an Indigenous learning community in the area of Indigenous theology. Also, hi mom, you might be the only person who's willing to listen to this. The stories I want to share with you in this podcast come out of my research on the interactions with my Baptist denomination and Indigenous peoples in Western Canada. And what I discovered in that research were stories that have been lost and hidden for about 130 years. And I think that we are lesser for the absence of these stories. In fact, I I think that we're missing the real heroes of our faith in this land. And that there are essential elements of the story of how the gospel came here, and how gospel continues to work. Now, just one disclaimer before we get started. These stories as I have them. Are a result of non-indigenous voices. Uh, who've set them down. And those voices are also a part of the systems and structures. That failed to keep these stories in circulation. We do not have the stories of the Indigenous leaders of whom I'm going to speak or uh, voices from their communities, their family members. Those voices are vital. And in the absence of them, what I will attempt to do is to tell the story the circumstances surrounding them. I think it's still vital for us to hear their stories. And my longing in uh, seeding the world with these preliminary stories, putting them into our imaginations, is that uh, I hope they might inspire that work to be done in due time. All right. So now let's turn to episode one and to the question of how beer created a Pentecost moment for Baptists in the 1890s. The seashore is lined with canoes. They've been pulled up on the beach, huge, ocean-going canoes. They were designed to hold 20 paddlers, plus dogs, and children, and elders, and supplies to last for months. These are big canoes. A little city has sprung up with temporary dwellings. Tents and racks are set up for drying fish or laundry. Children play. They run in and out amongst the dwellings. Young men have gathered in a field across the way for some horse racing competitions. Older men are gathered around a game of bones. All the while, more people keep pouring in. Some by canoe. Others have come by horseback. Women sit in circles chatting, catching up on the news as they weave baskets for the work of the days ahead. The year is 1885, and the largest global producer of hops an essential grain in the production of beer is the Puget Sound area of the Pacific coast. Now, the harvest season is short and it requires quick and nimble pickers to harvest at peak ripeness and before the grain is spoiled by the rain. Recruitment for the very best pickers is a fierce competition and the most highly sought-after workers are Indigenous women. We now know that uh, the reason that they were the best pickers had to do with those baskets they were weaving that didn't compact the uh, grain in their baskets and allowed them to have greater volume at the end of the day. But these women have also brought their whole families to pick in the fields. They've come from up and down the coast of British Columbia, all the way up to Alaska. In 1885, 6,000 indigenous pickers will have assembled from British Columbia. Now that represents one in four of the entire indigenous population of British Columbia. And it's probably not a coincidence that this corresponds with the season when Indian agents, uh, the RCMP and clergy, would have been rounding up students to take them off to residential schools. Now, while the harvest itself would last for just a couple of weeks, those who've traveled down either from the coast by canoe or inland from the east of the Cascades by horseback They will set up camp for a couple of months. They'll use that time to trade and to fish, to gather supplies for the winter. And it was also an important time for cultural exchange and to strengthen family and trading ties that were being increasingly undermined through the range of Indian Act policies back in Canada. This was, in many ways, a resistance camp to what was happening in enforcement on Canadian soil. It is the two to three month temporary cities that spring up along the coast that are the occasion for what uh, Reverend Ludlow, a Baptist minister from Seattle, would call a profound Pentecost moment. He spoke of the great throngs who were assembled on the shores of the Puget Sound from hundreds of different tribes and tongues. And he spoke of them as having an openness to the gospel that he had never before seen. Revival-style tent meetings are set up in the evenings and on Sundays, but it becomes clear to Ludlow and to other Euro-Canadian and American pastors that they face a huge barrier because they don't share the language. They do preach in a trade language known as Chinook, and they acknowledge that there is a need for one who could speak in the heart language of those who are assembled. By 1885, that barrier has been overcome. There is a minister who has arrived on the scene, profoundly gifted, who not only speaks six of the languages represented in the indigenous uh, groups that are gathered, but a person who speaks with authority that Ludlow remarks as being unlike any he has ever seen, whereby, in his words, sinners melt and saints rejoice. Now, I mentioned at the top that these stories have been missing for 130 years. And in that time, details go missing as well. One of those important details is that we do not know the name of this important person, this disciple of Jesus uniquely gifted for this particular moment in time. Here are the things we do know. We know she's a woman. We know she speaks these six languages. We know that she's from the Shimshian Nation. And Ludlow records that she was likely the daughter of a chief. What is probably more likely is that she was herself a matriarchal leader within the community. Thanks for joining us and tune in next week to find out what made this unnamed leader's strategies and approaches so effective. We look forward to seeing you next week.